0: sutta uh, the word in pali sutta s u t t a is the same as the word in um, sanskrit for sutra which is a you know a teaching or a discourse of the buddha I don't know a particular uh, discourse, but I think it's a theme that that appears. Yeah. (laughs) You need to know which one, or you need to know. You need to know which sutta, or you need to know uh, about it. Okay. Well, it, it occurs in, in several different ways when uh, concentration and when qualities like concentration and rapture uh, particularly those two but other of the different factors of enlightenment are getting developed then because of that uh, particular quality of energy returning and, and coming together and unifying there are a lot of Uh, pleasant, even glorious kinds of experiences that happen. Um, The actual experiences are temporary manifestations of the concentration uh, and and the other qualities. Sometimes when concentration gets very strong and even when rapture gets very strong, the manifestations are unpleasant. You know, people feel strange sensations in the body that they don't really like and uh, you know, then they go to a teacher and the teacher kind of smiles and says, oh, that's rapture. <laughs> and usually you think, are you crazy? <laughs> you know, <laughs> Like, that's not rapture. <laughs> um, but it really is just about these, um, these temporary manifestations of those qualities. When the manifestation is pleasant, of course, we like it. And we forget that it's just, in some ways, a side product. It's like a, taking a, a pill and having a side effect. Um, and so we get lost in uh, either analyzing it, trying to figure out what it's about, or trying to hold on to it, trying to recreate it, make it happen again. And it's really all beside the point. You know, It's just something that's happening as a function of these qualities growing stronger. Um, There are certain times in the practice uh, when there's also a lot of insight developing. And if you go back to an understanding of the three characteristics of anicca, dukkha, and anatta, or impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and uh, essencelessness, or selflessness the practice without our predetermination and without our decision and even without our permission winds its way through different levels of seeing those three insights. And each of those insights has its own feeling tone so that uh, when we're developing (coughs) insight into into dukkha, into unsatisfactoriness, it doesn't feel the same way as it does when we're developing insight into anatta Um, and impermanence even within impermanence there are many different kinds of feelings and flavors so that if in the practice the mind is just naturally alighting upon or falling upon the beginnings of things uh, it you know, we're seeing coming into being, we're seeing renewing, we're seeing arising. Um, it's like seeing birth, you know, and it's it's wonderful. It tends to be a period of practice which feels really good. Uh, and anybody would call it like a peak experience, you know. It's, it's all that wonderful feeling of things coming into being. And then there are times when, again, it's not, you know, it's not a question of our something under our control it's just a, a movement it's a natural evolution through practice there are times when the mind is naturally alighting upon the endings of things and everything's to be, seems, everything seems to be passing away and it's very vague we feel like we can't really connect to anything It's um, uh, sometimes people describe it like there's a veil between their awareness and, and the object and the experience and they can't really connect and there's the, doesn't seem to be anything to hold on to and and there's not even really anything to experience you know it's all so fleeting and, and that doesn't tend to be a very glorious period in practice in terms of our interpretation and our relationship to it you know most people don't like that um and yet it's just always changing You know, sometimes we're seeing impermanence in one way sometimes we're seeing it in another way sometimes we're seeing dukkha even if we'd really rather not You know, sometimes we're seeing anatta and yet we can't make that last either uh, so it's always it's always this, this flow of deepening insight but we don't always like it um, and that's another danger in kind of getting caught in defining certain experiences as good meditation because then everything else seems to fall short, you know, and it's not and maybe it's really even better, you know, maybe it's it's a an ever deepening insight into dukkha, but we don't like it because it doesn't feel the way we think good meditation should feel, you know, with with bliss and joy and all those nice things. Um, And so getting attached to meditative states as experiences uh, tends to create a lot of suffering because we judge everything else. We say it's not good enough or we try very hard to get it back or we define only that as good experience and we forget that um, it too is changing, that it may just be a function of qualities coming together and we don't have to get lost in it we don't have to try to keep it um, and that there's a difference between enjoying it and getting attached to it you know because if we get attached to it we'll try to keep it just that one way and uh, it really may be time to move on and we may have moved on whether we like it or not So. when I was doing uh, metta meditation in Burma and I got to the place where uh, we're about to do metta to the enemy or difficult person Upendita said to me well if you don't have an enemy you don't have to create one so if you don't have any questions <laughs> really, you don't have to create any it's alright okay thank you Do you have any questions about your practice? Sitting, walking, anything? Alma? Um, You know, I wouldn't worry so much about this uh, distinction between concentration and mindfulness. I know it's come up a lot in the course. Um, It's more kind of to the point to see the distinction between concentration practices and mindfulness practices, not between the actual factors of mind necessarily in a given. Hour, um, you know, if you're doing a concentration practice, then since the the stated goal is to cherish or stay connected to that chosen object, whatever it is, everything else that comes up is considered a distraction, and so as gently but as quickly as possible, we simply let go of it and return the attention back to that chosen object. So any of the Brahma-viharas, for example, are concentration practices. Our first uh, avenue of approach to anything other than the phrase that comes up, um, another emotional state like anger, uh, a train of thought, of planning, whatever it is, we're not particularly trying to investigate it or... Uh, note it, but simply to let go of it as quickly as possible and come back to the chosen object. In mindfulness practice, obviously, we we relate differently to the various things that come. We don't simply try to pay attention to the breath, um, but if something arises that is strong enough to take the attention away from the breath or whatever primary object there is, then we connect as fully as possible to that. We note it. We look at it. And only after some time do we return the attention. And so there are different approaches um, to practice and how to relate to the various experiences of practice. But to try to determine in any given hour whether you have uh, more concentration than mindfulness is is probably not going to be either possible or or really useful. There is a balance between, very classically, between concentration and energy um, which is useful uh, to assess not constantly, you know, but um, within some, say, part of a day if concentration is much stronger than energy uh, at any given period then you will find yourself in the sitting going off into a very calm and peaceful but dreamy drifty state and there won't be a sense of clarity or accuracy or or precision at all if that state deepens enough you will fall asleep but it's not sleepiness coming from sloth necessarily it's coming from having more concentration, cooking, than, than energy. And so what we try to do is not lose the concentration, but also build up the energy, pick it up. Um, noting, sitting with your eyes open, straightening up, maybe standing, maybe doing more walking, all things like that can keep the continuity going, but pick up the energy. And sometimes there's more energy than, than concentration or calm, And so you feel very excited and enthusiastic and and interested and um, really juiced, you know, and and a lot's going on. But uh, it's almost like your attention lands on an object and jumps off it because you can't settle, you can't uh, connect, and there's not enough just basic tranquility going. And then we try to not... um, dissipate the energy sometimes when there's a lot of energy it feels so bad You know, we're so, we feel so jumpy that we just want to get rid of the energy just discharge it so we can come back to a, a better feeling state but rather than dissipate it we simply try to ground it so you might walk and really feel yourself within the body within the step um, feel your feet against the ground in sitting when there's a lot of restlessness we do one of two things. So there's a lot of energy which is manifesting as restlessness. Either we try to simplify and just in a very light and smooth way feel the breath, develop more concentration and more calm in that way. Or we try to give the the high energy state a very big field of attention in which to jangle around in <laughs> so that it's not like a lot of energy in a very small tight enclosed space which is clearly going to be uh, very difficult you know if that same degree of energy is existing in a very big open space of awareness then it can do its thing but it's it's not like bouncing off the walls um... so we do one of those two things so that's actually a balance that is very interesting and deepening of the practice to understand. Yeah. Um when you It depends. It, it may be so and it, it may not be so. Um, the distinction is that the concentration uh, in a mindfulness practice comes as a result of a continuity of awareness. comes as a result of the continuity of mindfulness on changing objects. And in any particular sitting, you know, because we're not trying to um, shepherd the attention back to the primary object, you know, very quickly and uh, simply be absorbed in it. But we are going with changing objects. In any given sitting, um, it may be different. You know, there may be sittings with a tremendous amount of thinking uh, and you may be quite concentrated anyway because the mindfulness of the thinking is more continuous than not. And so, and so that will bring all, all of the concentration that one needs. You may not feel as absorbed because the rapidity of change of the objects can be, can be very fast um, but then there are times uh, either when there is less happening, just naturally, and, you know, and there's almost like a smoother rhythm uh, between objects when you might feel quite absorbed um, or there are times when something like change itself becomes the object of meditation or the object of of awareness, and so it's not particularly thought, hearing, whatever that that is the um, the object, but actually the nature of change. You know, and that again. Uh, can be a very absorbing and and powerful practice. So,
1: Mark. Um, <clears throat>
2: Gentle and is usually very um supportive but are not clear about what it is and what to do does
0: it make any sense? Or? Not quite. Um things okay. <laughs> uh so it's not clear How lengthy is the um, exhortation? A few words, sometimes. Yeah, that seems fine. You know, it it could be a kind of uh, again. You know, it's a lot. um, Depends on your own sensitivity and awareness. You know, listen to the tone of that. You know, is it chastising or is it? Very helpful and supportive.
2: doesn't seem like it's thinking, but sometimes I'm wondering whether it's taking that tone. That's
0: what's kinda of hard to tell at times. Yeah. I, mean, I think it's fine. It's also helpful. It's happening anyway, for one thing. You know, it's not uh, you know it's not something you're producing. Um, if it gets lengthy, uh, then you have to see where you're elaborating it. You know, if it's uh, if it's not then it's simply in arising. If possible, uh, it is a thought, and and you can know it as thinking, even if you're not necessarily taking the time to note it as thinking. You can know that that's that's the thinking process going on there. Yeah, please... (laughs) You know, what is not um, so helpful to be involved in is um, kind of a mental overlay that is uh, distorting our experience in some way, like um, saying to oneself... Uh, see the changing nature of this in a way that um, is too forced or or too demanding Uh, it might be fine you know, because in fact we know that, we know that it's changing but um, we forget, and so sometimes that voice just arises in in a very gentle way, which is fine, so look at that yeah, yeah yeah. Yeah. okay, yeah yeah no No, not necessarily. (laughs) They put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Ruth? <laughs> you might as well use it if you. And at that point, it was <laughs> like narration is what the experience is. Um, I think you can do several things, you know. And again, it depends on your own sensitivity and awareness, your feeling about how it's functioning. You know what's going on. Sometimes the narrator appears to separate us from what's going on, so we're not having to be in touch we're not having to feel and we're not having to be present because we're one step back and and it's so it's actually intervening between us and the experience and that's just something you can you know only you can know from from how it feels and so uh if it feels that way then i would notice that it's present and in a very simple way reconnect to your experience you know if, if you're out walking and it's uh uh, it 's a very rich tapestry of experience you know you your feet against the ground and it 's the sounds and it 's the feeling of the wind and it 's you know it 's the light uh, so there 's a lot you can come back to and and reconnect to if it doesn 't feel like it 's functioning that way you know that it's it 's just um kind of an articulation that 's going on and you 're still very connected to the experience then give it a name you know and and uh note its presence, you know, it's like the two of you are taking the walk together <laughs> and, and uh, you, can, you can just recognize that that's there, you know, and, uh, and not get particularly um, lost in it, you know, because if it goes on and on and on and you get very interested in that without noting it, then you will get disconnected from, from what's actually happening. So it's really, you know, it's, it's uh, really for you to feel what's, how it's functioning, you know, and whether you have to really um, come back to the kind of sensate experience very quickly or whether you can note it and kind of just gently let it be there in the background. Okay, thank you. Do you have any questions about your practice? Anything that's happening?
3: Ah.
1: Yeah, uh, for a long time I uh, had a little bit of this meta. I still have it. I think I now have found out finally essential question. When I wish for the other person, for example, to be healthy and strong, then I can imagine uh, the other person to be healthy and strong. I see a uh, smile, be upright, and I get sort of this feeling too, uh, to we feel healthy and strong. This is one way. The other way is to focus on the, on the wishing itself. Then I wouldn't the need a sentence, then I would just uh, could say, open your heart then I feel uh, then I feel uh, good for them but not, uh, I don't feel exactly what they feel the first thing I feel a little uncomfortable because then I go through all these feelings of I'm healthy, I'm strong and so on but there is a lack of wishing for them and the second way then I have this wishing I think it's a very good thing but then all these things
0: <laughs> well <laughs> uh, I think that the second way you described is uh, generally speaking better than the first um, it uh, is important that the meta be infused with uh, equanimity which means wisdom you know, and so um, if somebody is is wretched, uh, to say, "May you be happy with a kind of um, agitation or or demand," uh, you know, to to imagine that in in a way that is um, somehow attached then, of course, as soon as you open your eyes, you'll feel disappointed and uh, dismayed. Um, It's really, it is the purification of our relationship to this person, to the world, and it's our gift of a certain quality of energy, which does have its effect. The essential balance is between metta and, and equanimity. It's only because we have equanimity that we can say things are the way that they are, I can accept that things are the way that they are, that in fact we have the patience and the courage and the endurance to keep generating metta. You know, may you be happy in the face of continued suffering is not easy. And so it, it takes a tremendous basis of equanimity and. Um, inner peace, to be able to, to continually make that offering of that gift. So I, I do prefer, uh, in my own practice of metta, resting the mind, resting the attention in the phrases. Uh, the number of phrases or the um, exact wording of the phrases is very personal. Um, to say "May you be happy" or "May you be peaceful" is a way of saying, "May my heart open." I personally wouldn't phrase it, you know, like "Open your heart," which, which sounds um, like it could fall into that sort of demand. You know, what if you say that and it doesn't happen? You know, are you then angry at yourself or or do you try harder to manufacture a certain feeling or experience? You know, it, it's not quite the way to practice because it is very delicate. You're um, making this offering and you're saying these phrases yet without uh, that intensity of demand and attachment. You know, I must make it so by this afternoon. And if I'm not sitting here experiencing great waves of what I consider loving kindness then I failed or it's, it's no good or whatever um, so I say again and again and again and again uh, you know, to rest the attention in the phrases and not to try to force any kind of feeling just let it evolve Kathy? Um, What's it? I can-
3: Okay. I would
0: assume that's fine Okay, I have to okay. being a diluted type, I have to stop you because it's it's all fading as you speak. <laughs> okay. In terms of the first thing, uh, I don't think you need to try to discern whether you're feeling something or thinking the feeling. I mean that's too fine a distinction. Uh, It's just to be aware as best you can of what's happening. Um, I wouldn't move too quickly uh, in a fear-driven way from person to person uh, because there are other feelings to be felt there. Um, You don't want to use any of these practices, uh, although one can, it's not that ultimately helpful to use any of these practices uh, in a way where you're trying to hold down what feelings are coming up and somehow superimposing this very fine veneer of love or compassion or, or forgiveness at the same time trying to quite defensively hold other things in abeyance. So um, pace yourself You know, there will be uncomfortable feelings and and some very, very difficult uh, memories or feelings, but that's part of it, you know, is is the full and integrated experience of that. And when you say, let go, um, I think the best way to be saying something like that is having allowed these difficult feelings to come up, uh, to feel the burden of them, to feel the pain of them, to recognize you're the one who's suffering from them. This person has gone on, uh, alive or not, you know, and and you're sitting here in some way stuck or bound to that experience, bearing the pain of it, feeling the, the pain of the anger, or whatever it is. And so it's out of compassion for yourself that you make that wish. It's not out of an idealism or um, trying to suit a certain image of yourself or of goodness or, or whatever. It's because you feel the pain of not. And out of the greatest love and compassion for yourself, you make that wish and you do uh, all of the, the steps of relinquishment, of letting go, of uh, letting be, and moving on. Rebecca? Well, any kind of training process um, both makes qualities like uh, mindfulness and concentration uh, and metta more familiar and uh, more readily available. I mean, just coming here to a retreat is, is a huge difference from how most people live day to day. And so one could ask that same question about that. You know, why should I come to a retreat and be silent and do all that in order to prepare for a mindful life? And we do that because the, uh, the simplification and the intensification of our experience being on retreat and being silent is like a training ground, you know, so that our, our sense of being mindful our our ready return to being mindful, Um, our confidence in ourselves and our ability to bring forth these qualities in a variety of circumstances strengthens enormously. And with that confidence, we can basically be fearless in many circumstances you know but we do we we train intensively okay let's train intensively <laughs> do you have any questions about your practice anything that you're experiencing Ooh, that's
2: Person, and I'm, I'm noticing one more, more where this is coming up for me, especially if I'm um, uh, in a state of acute, mind where things are more sensitive and more fragile. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can see that. Uh, strong identification or attachment the way I want things to be that if anything comes in and threatens that there is reaction and suffering. It's a lot of suffering. So I can see that this is what the Buddha was talking about to try to break this identification. So the question is um, Does it? For us to, uh, once we see this this dynamic, to look underneath to see what's going on as to uh, why we're taking things personal. Um, an example would be uh, like an attachment to a point of view, and let's say underneath that would be um, a Right and possibly underneath that the fear of being wrong for whatever reason. And who knows how far <laughs> <laughs> to go. But I, I keep hearing the words um understanding and seeing clearly and I'm wondering if it's worth our while
1: mm-hmm.
2: to take a glimpse of this to get to a clear picture of just how set up, mm-hmm.
0: set up. Um, I think the answer uh, is mixed, actually um, on a certain level all we might need to do say in that state of very intense reaction is to see the very nature of the reaction in terms of it being impermanent, um, it being conditioned, not necessarily knowing exactly what all of the conditioning agents are, but seeing that in that sense it's, it's a uh, created or conditioned thing, so it's insubstantial. It doesn't have an inherent existence apart from all the things that made it come to be. And that is the great teaching of relativity You know, um, it's always astonished me, that fact, uh, because we can get so lost in our own point of view that it seems incredible that other people can be experiencing exactly the same circumstance and feel very differently about it. You know, somebody can say something and some people will feel it and consider it to be very harsh and other people will find it quite frank and bold and they'll have a whole other feeling about it even though it was exactly the same thing so when the intense reactiveness comes in the mind right in that moment without looking back to the particular things leading up to it we can see that it's a conditioned thing it's a relative thing, it's insubstantial in that sense Um, it's born out of conditions it's impermanent and so even in that really tormented state perhaps we can be free because of our relationship to it sometimes it is interesting to see the particular conditions it's very insightful um, to understand our own tendencies so it's like uh, knowing that you tend toward greed or grasping you might understand things um, in that light, or knowing that you tend toward delusion, you understand things in that light. Uh, if you find yourself rigidly holding on, there's probably some fear producing that rigidity. And, and you can get quiet enough to feel it. It's a little different than a, a probing, analytical sense of trying to go deeper, dive deeper, see what's underlying something, Um, because that can be quite forceful and impatient and frustrating because it isn't always very clear. Um, A lot comes back in some utterly strange and simple way to the teaching about the fork and the broccoli, or the fork and the potato, or whichever food object you would like to, to use in this example. Um, because if we have an experience of the present moment, which is that object, we aim the attention toward it, and then we meet it with a careful modulation of energy if there's too little energy then as you have heard (laughs) it's like the fork is just hanging there in your hand but if there's too much energy it's like you take the fork and you bash it through the broccoli or whatever perhaps through the plate and everything goes flying Um, sometimes when we get interested uh, in that kind of investigation you know what's under here and what's under here and what's under here it's like, it becomes like taking the fork and bashing the piece of food. Our energy is too, is too ardent in a way. It's too strained or um, it's too forceful. And so I tend not to, uh, in my own practice, do that a lot because of that energetic consequence, but more just try to meet what's going on in the moment, see it in the light of dukkha and anatta, if I can, And allow it if it's going to reveal a hidden layer and a hidden layer and a hidden layer. Just allow that to do that by itself because I'm present for it, and not because I'm I'm digging in there Susan?
3: You Also said, um, I think there's later in the talk when you're talking about realizing sincerity and that type of thing, and also, <coughs> to, I tend to question my sincerity, and I think it's because I'm operating a lot more on that hope fear model than on the faith urgency model. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping you didn't really explain how to transmute that hope fear into faith So maybe you can
0: talk about developing that transition. <laughs> um, in in a fundamental sense, everything comes back to mindfulness. Um, if you can be aware of the hope, fear, hope, fear, hope, fear, um, movement in the mind, and the quality of your awareness is is actually being mindful of that, then inherent in that degree of awareness is is confidence, is trust, uh, is openness, is fully being present. So that's always the first um, avenue, or the first avenue of approach, is to actually be... That's like our ultimate refuge, because the nature of mindfulness or awareness is not going to change depending on what it's watching. It could be watching the most miserable um, tortured state of mind or could be watching the loveliest most uplifting state of mind and the actual nature or the quality of mindfulness does not change that's why it's considered to be ultimately freeing because there's no circumstance there's no condition, there's no arising, there's no experience that's going to come up that suddenly we cannot be mindful of, you know, or that our mindfulness is ruined because it's having to incorporate or include this nasty thing, you know, as, as opposed to all these nice things. So the first thing always is, is to be mindful. The more we rest in awareness in changing states, the more trust we have in the power of awareness because we see what I just described, you know, it's not, it's not abstract, it's not imaginary, and it's not removed from your experience um, in this day or in this sitting. We see it's absolutely true that we can be mindful of this, and we can be mindful of that, and we can be mindful of that. And if we forget, then sooner or later we'll remember. That is, um, in some ways, that's the function of a, a teacher in this tradition, is to help us remember perhaps sooner than we might have on our own. So you may have noticed that in interviews, for example, <laughs> no matter what you say, <laughs> some way or another, you're met with a response <laughs> of, can you be aware of it? You know, How do you feel about it? Were you with it? Did you hate it? Could you actually be present? Could you note it? Um, it's all variations on a theme. So sometimes... <laughs> You know, we joke and we say that teaching this is really the easiest thing in the world. You know, you find five ways of saying the same thing. <laughs> Could you note it? Could you be with it? Are you aware of it? Um, and that's all you need to do. Because it's true. And so it's, it's a question of experiencing that enough. Like, oh, I can be aware of this too. I can be aware of that too. I can be aware of that too and the confidence grows. It grows out of our own direct experience. That's the best way. And so, we'd say, I'd say first of all, learn to trust the quality of mindfulness. But check it. Trust it because you've tested it. You know, see if in fact it's true. You can be aware of this, and you can be aware of this, and you can be aware of this, and the nature of awareness does not change. That's your investigation. And I wouldn't doubt your own sincerity. Um, because that more than likely is is some kind of old tape arising in the mind saying that you're not doing it well enough or you're not caring enough or you're not practicing right or something like that. Um, All of those tapes arise continually for people and they get highlighted in some ways in the practice. So once again, the point becomes can you be aware of it, can you watch it, can you see it because if you can right in that moment your practice is perfect even though the very thing that you're observing is not very pleasant and were you to believe it and spin out on it it would be uh, quite dreadful in that moment of simply observing it you're doing all that you need to do And so you can completely trust your practice in a single moment of being mindful. And don't feel despair or dismay because that doesn't last. It doesn't last for anybody. The point is to renew that again and again and again, to remember as soon as possible, just be mindful, just be mindful, just be mindful. Um, That's actually how the progression or the movement in the practice happens. We're mindful for a moment or two or three. We're completely lost, disconnected, reactive, whatever. And then we remember. We simply come back. It's over a longer period of time that the proportions change of how many moments of mindfulness in a row there tend to be how many moments of spacing out there tend to be but it's always a moment to moment process um, you can trust your practice you know, take a look at what your experience actually is not in terms of the content of what's arising but in terms of your willingness to be present with it That's why it's the Hindsight Meditation Society. Because you can't tell that in an afternoon. You know, you can only look back and say, oh yeah, I used to get caught in that for, you know, three and a half days every time it came up in my mind. Now I'm getting caught in it and completely lost in it and driven by it, you know, for an hour and a half. It's not generally speaking a very pleasant hour and a half, you know, and so most people don't jump up and down with joy and say, Oh good. But if we look back, then we see that the change from being completely lost and and cut off and reactive for three and a half days, the change from three and a half days to an hour and a half is a huge change in the quality of our lives. But that doesn't happen overnight. You know, it goes from three and a half days to three and a quarter days. (laughs) And slowly we find that those proportions are changing. So over a period of time if you look back, that's exactly what you see. Okay, it's time to walk. Thank you. I have a few announcements I'd like to make. Um... First of all, yes, there were pews in this room when we first came to IMS 20 years ago. I have a better memory than Joseph in general. Second, um, our, our scheduled plan is to hold a kind of farewell ritual tonight. The only question is whether um, our friend Dan Goldman, who's supposed to come tomorrow night, will come tonight instead because of the weather. Um... Dan uh, is another person who was with us in Bodh in 1970 and uh, for the past several years he's been writing articles on science and the mind for the New York Times and this fall while you all were sitting he had a book published called Emotional Intelligence which is a kind of disguised Dharma book um, laughter talking about the importance of the heart and uh, he doesn't use the word mindfulness, he uses self-awareness the critical importance of self-awareness in life and, and this book uh, has been a bestseller, it's been on the New York Times bestseller list for weeks and weeks so um, he is the book the book is Emotional Intelligence and his name is Dan Goleman and he's supposed to come tomorrow night and is trying to Um, as you can see (laughs) we have a strange karmic weather pattern (laughs) over us so uh, if everything goes as planned we're going to have a ritual tonight and he'll come tomorrow night and if anything changes we'll just post it on the board for the ritual um, we were hoping that if you uh, have a particularly inspiring um, short passage from somewhere Uh, part of a poem or something that has been meaningful or inspiring for you that you could just bring that Um, you certainly are not compelled to not everybody needs to say something but if there's something you would like to share that has been meaningful or important for you and is brief (laughs) then then that would be lovely do you have any questions? yeah (laughs) you. Uh, two quick things.
2: One is, um, I uh, to is having a very hard time.
0: How is the format different? Well, it looks like you will be teaching Yeah, that's that's sort of a misprint. Um, uh, it's good that you brought that up. Um, uh, just somehow in the uh, design of the brochure that implication was was put in. Um, the teachers of next year's 3-month course um, For the full course are Joseph, uh, Carol, Steve Smith, Steve Armstrong, Michelle will be here just for the first six weeks and uh, another friend named Kamala will be here for the second six weeks. So it's actually only Michelle and Kamala who are half and half and I will be practicing. No, it doesn't matter. Actually, <laughs> yeah. I know
1: that mm-hmm. there's such a ton of sutras mindfulness, and what's at this time. But I'm wondering if there's a sutta that addresses dependent origination and what it's called, and also dukkha-viññāna.
0: Dukkha what? Okay. The question was about uh, sutras discuss, discussing different um, of the teachings. There are many, you know, and so the best thing to do uh, for a particular sutta on dependent origination or on the three characteristics, actually, is um, to uh, ask Andy Alensky in some way. I don't know if you're going down to the study center today, um, but. Uh, he is either there or here. And is it today that there's some... Yeah. So, uh... Several people, it seems, are going to go down today. There's just an introduction to the place. Um, And somebody, probably Andy, will be giving a talk and... uh, He is the perfect person to ask. He came into our lives as our poly teacher. And um, uh, became the executive director of IMS, but but he is he's sort of our principal scholarly uh, reference. <laughs> so. Uh, I hope so. You should ask in the office. I don't know what what's going on. Uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> There may be cars going down. You know, I'm not sure. So. What time is it is it three? It's an absolutely beautiful place. So uh, and well worth going. Yeah. Yes. Andy's going down. <laughs> Andy's going down to the study center full time. So yeah. Do you go on planning, or do you go on meditating? Okay.-hmm <laughs> I'd say if it works to do it. <laughs> and um, you know, again, as, as we've talked about, the, the biggest variable in uh, practice in some way is the factor of concentration. Because it's a very fragile, rather dependent quality um, in terms of external circumstances. And so you will see wild swings in concentration both here and and outside in the world. Uh, sometimes a single note, you know, concentration will be strong and a single note will allow us to see through something. Sometimes concentration won't be so strong, but that's all right. You know, that's just the way it is. Uh, and that's why we say mindfulness is more quality to rest the practice on, and to uh, trust ultimately for freedom. Because it's not fragile. It's not dependent on things being a certain way. So. <laughs> well, it's uh, a lot of snow. I think freezing rain is coming soon, today. Uh, but as you know, the weather, as much as people try to predict it, <laughs> is rather unpredictable. So, but you should definitely check before you make the decision to drive home. The what? Oh, I believe some, Elizabeth, do you know? Uh, I believe he's uh, doing a, a special on Houston Smith, who was a uh, professor of religion and, and great writer, and brought spirituality to the forefront of consciousness, um, you know, some years ago. So, those of you who would like to attend that sitting and. <laughs> <laughs> Be seen that's fine, and if you don't, you're certainly welcome to sit in the library or do something else. You You get good karma. (laughs) All you have to do is sit, which you're doing anyway, (laughs) and be seen. (laughs) (laughs) Fortunately not. (laughs) Uh it, it was a chapel. You know, there were pews and the um you know, the uh front was up here and the uh <laughs> altar. Thank you. <laughs> the uh thank you. Uh there were um uh, many statues of the Virgin Mary throughout the dining room and other places. There was a baby grand piano in the dining room. There was a candle-making factory in the basement. There was a barber shop in the Catskills. You know, it was a, it was a self-enclosed community that, um... Were they a teaching room? It was a novitiate. So, so, yeah. And those of you who sat here years ago remember the curtains on the, on the wall. They were here. <laughs> <laughs> so that that whole screen there, huh? Yes. Yeah. Do you know the meaning of the little R E T P. I don't. Uh, <laughs> empty. Empty. I've often wondered that. Enjoy Was the walking room always the walking room? Yes. I mean it was it was empty. Empty. this <laughs> <laughs> interior decoration this is a, a, was a gift from uh, a Thai visitor and we used to hang a Burmese bell from there. the Burmese bells are the ones we ring for you know, the people go around with so but it's going to get to be like the Catskills you know in 20 years we'll have another idea about it and we'll weave a legend around it Mel a question
1: I have wondered about since I heard that the Dalai Lama bolt in the bigment downstairs, as a you know pin spotter was <laughs> <laughs> <No>.
0: <laughs> The Dalai Lama did visit here in 1979, and he did, in fact, <laughs> throw a volleyball down that down that lane. Okay, (laughs) well. Uh, And I think it, as you said, somebody uh, of us amongst us is having a rather difficult time and it would be quite lovely just to to send Metta and and to, um, for all of us really. And uh, some people are leaving today or throughout the days and beginning their journey home and um, it's quite beautiful to Remain connected in that essential fashion. So, okay, thank you. I had a dream last night that I came in this morning to lead this sitting, and you were all lying down watching television on a big screen in <laughs> <on> the wall. <laughs> So were you? <laughs> Indeed, I wondered. I couldn't tell if it was a good dream or a bad dream. You know, if it meant you were so relaxed <laughs> or so distracted. I was actually very relieved when I walked in here. <laughs> it was as normal.
1: <laughs>
0: I didn't notice that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, why not, <laughs> Mark? Could
2: uh, you say something about uh, radical trust and uh, perhaps in reference to uh, clinging uh, or non-clinging? I don't know
0: if it's necessary to add that, but not going to push. Yeah, no, they, I think they do go together. The question was about uh, radical trust and clinging or non-clinging. <laughs> um, I think it's a very interesting question. Uh, We experience it a thousand different ways all of the time. Um, And for some strange reason, the fork and the broccoli is coming up in my mind. (laughs) So here we are again. (laughs) You know, think what it means to. to feel inside that we have to take that fork and and bash it you know it's like we're in a hurry and we have to make sure we connect Um, it's that extra effort that is unnecessary because we can be relaxed and and doing what we need to do and trust that that's enough Um, Joseph once said that he was practicing mindfulness in in a retreat situation but um, especially practicing in activity, daily activity. And he said that one of the first things he noticed was that he was holding on to his toothbrush as though it were a jackhammer. about to leap out of his hand. You know, there's so much tension in what we do and so much distrust, so much extra effort and, and effort to control, you know, that uh, it kind of accumulates... And so what we really practice in a single moment is finding that balance where we're connected but we're not doing that extra thing, um, which doesn't do any good anyway. You know, it's, it's not that, that extra intensity of effort brings everything under control all of a sudden. Things are happening as they're happening according to conditions and we need to uh, in every moment in a sense, feel our energetic relationship to things. Um, And most of the time, we need to settle back. Sometimes we need to come forward, you know, because we're just so disconnected. But quite a bit of the time, we need to relax. We need to trust and just do what we need to do and let, let everything else take care of everything else. Mm-hmm. It's better that way, yeah. <laughs> um I think it's a little tricky because it depends on how you use those words. Uh a very accurate sense of the near enemy of compassion um is the word sorrow or or grief, or maybe most accurately, heartbrokenness. And again, it's not um, that we are categorizing those states as bad. We are, or they, you know, in the teachings, they are distinguished from compassion. And because they are so close, it's easy to confuse one for the other. So uh, it's important to understand what we're feeling accurately and, and not be... Not be confused by the the closeness of them, um, and the difference between those two is really uh, compassion is said to have a certain sense of wholeness or sufficiency with it, whereas heartbrokenness or grief is shattered. You know, it's broken, and and there's not a lot of energy uh, to actually move to make change you know and so it's, it's more like being sunk into a state um, and overcome by it and, and not feeling the uh, the capacity that we actually have to, uh, to affect things you know to change things sometimes um, in the very old translations the word pity is used instead of compassion you know and so it's difficult because of the language to, to know exactly what is being talked about. It seems better to make the distinction as I just made it. <coughs> so.
1: The second question, in daily life uh, mm-hmm. there, there are times where uh, I have to motivate to sit, because it seems quite remote and odd. Mm-hmm. And as I'm not uh, an Asian who has a teacher who I blindly follow or uh, as a mantra, <laughs> uh, I, need to, uh, I need to do it for myself. Look for a motivation so that I really mm-hmm. see that you are mm-hmm. down. Mm-hmm. And then I say, okay, uh, to sit and calm. Um, I like this unhappiness. Maybe rapture, say down, or eat bigger things. So, <laughs> minutes of observing the breath that uh comes the fruit of this sort of motivation that's the expectation. I tapped into the expectation <laughs> chapter. Uh yeah. How can I motivate
0: and motivate myself without tapping with this trap Well I think there there are several ways. One is I think you can you can uh Offer yourself the possibility of rapture and joy and bliss and calm and peace and all of those nice states. But once you sit down, let go. <laughs> you know, because that is that is the critical issue. It's not sort of what got you to sit down. It's what happens once you are sitting. Uh, are you able to practice as you know to practice? You know, not not being led by expectation and judgment and scorn when things don't meet your expectation and so on. Um, that seems the most important thing, is that no matter what gets you there, you practice with some confidence in your ability, which you should have, uh, to be mindful of of what you're actually experiencing. And when I met on Thursday with that small group, I told a story uh, that was told to me, so forgive the repetition, those of you who were there, um, which happened when I, uh, was very early on in my practice, living in India, um, and when I would sit down and all of those nice things would come, I would feel very delighted, and I would think, oh, you know, I'll practice for the rest of my life, but when I would sit down in my daily life, even in India, and Start to practice, and it would be physically painful or boring, or I'd be restless or sleepy or something like that. I would get very discouraged right away, and I would stop. I would just stand up and say, Well, maybe tomorrow will be better, or you know, uh, next week will be better, or I'll wait until I do the next retreat, and then it will be better. And I was in a very bad cycle. Uh, because of that. So I went to Menindra, uh, who was my teacher at the time, and I said, This is what's happening. And he said to me, Just put your body there. You know, that's what you need to do. You just put your body there every day, and your mind will do what it does, you know, and some days it will be up and some days it will be down. But that's irrelevant to your commitment, which is just to put your body there, it's just to do it. And so um, that's another way to motivate yourself is just to have the commitment to sit. Uh, that is helped by not necessarily having um, an unrealistic time frame attached to that. You know, you may not be able to say, okay, I'm going to sit now for three hours uh, because it, it just may not be possible. Um, and then the third thing, which is really, um, taking that to another level uh, is something that Joseph's talked about a lot I don't know if he's talked about it in the hall um, about somebody he met uh, who told him that his commitment in daily life was not to go to sleep at night until he had had at least gotten into the meditative posture whether that's sitting on a cushion or on a chair however you happen to sit but that was his commitment that Every day, even if it was for less than one minute, (laughs) he was going to place himself in the meditative posture. Because, of course, that's the hardest part. You know, once we're actually sitting there, if we have the understanding that anything might happen and we don't need to judge, then, you know, we can sit on. It doesn't have to stay limited to a minute and a half. Um, But getting there can be very difficult. And so something either in the sense of of that kind of commitment, uh, something, you know, is, is often necessary. Realizing it doesn't have to be a magnificent sitting, it doesn't have to be a lengthy sitting, but something would be really helpful.
2: <laughs> uh, she should really sit first us um, and learn how to be more, more uh, self-aware as she does this. And as the uh, as that sitting, uh, as we got deep farther into the sitting, um, and I didn't mind her being there at all. And so this is all this kind of content. As I sat this morning, I thought it might really be good to do a whole retreat where we have people around yeah. <laughs> um, taking our pictures. Just, just kind of
1: being, being here uh, as a nuisance. And, uh,
0: <laughs> well, in terms of the first point, um, it was always uh, interesting in Burma because, um, you know, as we've mentioned, every meal is an offering from people. Uh, Sometimes very wealthy people will come and offer food to all the people meditating there or some section of the people meditating there. And sometimes it would be very, very, very poor people offering the food. So you never knew um, what it was going to be. And uh, sometimes it would be like a whole family or a whole village coming together to offer the food. And when either it was a, a wealthy person or a large enough group so that they could pool their money, often they would hire somebody with a video camera to watch you eat. <laughs> and Burmese food is very oily, and you know it's like sitting in a very oily sauce, and, and there would be these video cameras going, and <laughs> we were kind of like <laughs> trying not to have food dripping <laughs> down our faces and down our clothes, and um, it was an interesting, <laughs> interesting uh, event. <laughs> Every day <laughs> And the nuisances seem to arise spontaneously. so But it, it is um, there's always a balance. you know, People come to a retreat for a protected environment, but the reality is, uh, we need to practice as a way of life. And so if uh, we get so insular, you know that. A slight sound really annoys us. We need to look at that, you know, so that we can expand our our ability to be balanced and um, recognize the the power of mindfulness in that way. Because unfortunately, we have so little control over our environment anyway. You know, one could do a, a fantastic cartoon book of a meditator. Kind of gathering their cushions, you know, and, uh, making everything nice and smooth and wearing earplugs and eye masks and, you know. Um, but as Menindra used to say, what do you do with the mind? <laughs> you know, <laughs> suddenly there's an annoying memory, you know, or something like that. It's inevitable that there's distraction, there's disturbance, and that's fine because that's what we have to work with. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Rebecca. This is sort of connected to this. Um. So in practice, and in this protective environment and intensive practice, occasionally uh, people have developed this side psych- in the past of these retreats. And um, (laughs) they seem to be triggered by the practice. And since I'm now, you know, looking forward to a longer period of practice, I notice that my mind is kind of clinging to this as a source of fear that why does this happen and how can I kind of safeguard myself or, you know, those kinds
0: well, <laughs> um, I think that it's, you know, balance is always the key. And uh, working toward balance in every level, kind of the micro level and the macro level. Um, people in Burma, for example, Uh, except for Westerners, do not do very long periods of intensive practice. Um, They do practice and then they leave. They go out into the world um, and then they come back, perhaps, but uh, they don't tend to do very long periods of intensive practice because as they practice in Burma, um, it's very, well you can tell from the tapes, you know, it's very ardent. Uh, It's very intense, and they like people to really practice wholeheartedly with full effort for a short period of time, and then take a break. What's a short period? Two or three months, Mm -hmm. you know, and then then they'll stop in general. Um, And then they'll come back. Now, because Westerners go, you know, and it's so expensive, and you need a visa and all that, um, for much longer periods of time... They just work with the balance in a different way, and so uh, it depends on a relationship with a teacher. It depends on your own intuition and the instructions of the teacher. Um, and uh, I would say yes, intensive practice is not for everybody. And we try to express that. You know, if you're under a tremendous amount of stress, if uh, you know you feel extremely vulnerable it's not the time to go into intensive retreat you know we put that in print and we send that out and um, it's true you know it doesn't mean that one needs to be disconnected from the Dharma in any way it means that the format the particular format of silence intensive practice you know so little contact is not always appropriate you know for a person in a certain time and so um It is a personal decision one makes, you know, given that information uh, that, yeah, I feel like, you know, things are, things are okay. And as you all know, it's not a path free of suffering. And so um, it really all comes down to one's ability to be balanced with what, what is happening. You know, um, I said the thing about Burma just to kind of enlarge our vision of the Dharma. You know, there are many ways of being fully connected to and participating in the Dharma without necessarily doing intensive practice in this form. And so uh, when these people stop doing intensive practice in Burma, that doesn't mean, you know, they just lose it. It means that they're studying or they're doing something else or they're doing devotional practice or they're offering dana or they're, you know, they're doing something that is extremely rich and alive uh, and very, very connected. They're just not doing this only. And so, you know, because we have so little in this country uh, in terms of forms. We're all creating the forms right now. We're, you know, this generation of practitioners are like the pioneers. And so um, people tend sometimes to fixate on intensive retreat because it's the most powerful, obvious form that's that's available. And of course, it's a wonderful form. You know, it's it's a really tremendous thing to do. Um, but it's not the only one. You know. And so uh, as you go along, even making you know, even with that intention. Uh, it's just to have a really open view and a lot of self-respect, recognizing that you may feel it's time to stop, your teacher may feel it's time to stop, and that's fine, you know, that's not a terrible thing that this particular form, in this way, is no longer appropriate, you know. It's... You. Mm-hmm.
2: This is the only wisdom practice, is that
0: part, Sharon? This is the only wisdom practice? <laughs> I wouldn't say that. I mean, I I also want to distinguish practice from the form of intensive retreat. You know, that's kind of my point, is that um, if you are, if you work with the model of the paramis, for example, one of which is wisdom, uh, the entire practice in its complete range you know, of generosity, and morality, and loving and kindness, and wisdom, and energy, and I don't know if I can remember them all, <laughs> and uh, resolve, and renunciation, you know, and all of that, equanimity, um, patience, truthfulness, got it. <laughs> Those <That was> ten. <laughs> that was all ten. <laughs> um, that's a life. You know, sometimes we practice that in intensive retreats. Sometimes we practice that in life. But it's all the same thing. And so, uh, it's really the form I'm talking about here, you know, that it's a wonderful, powerful, obviously, you know, we support it, <laughs> um, you know, but it's not the, the entire domain of practice. And we're all limited if we begin to believe that that's so. Oh, okay. It's time to disperse. Uh, Shannon, yeah. Before
2: we disperse, there was a, you know, we're going to these little groups that people are organizing and, uh, a lot of people are torn. I myself am torn because they all look really great, uh-huh. and I'm wondering whether or not anyone would mind if we stagger them slightly so that we can just maybe get a taste of the ones I gonna.
0: Well, I don't mind. I don't know.
2: Uh, you know, like maybe one group could start at 9:15, and the next could start at uh, 9:45. We'll do two this morning. We'll them this afternoon. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Or perhaps discuss it somewhere other than in here so we can do our best to maintain the. How about